We have just a couple of weeks yet in our study of the Gospel of John. I mentioned this before. After today, we're going to skip over the sections on the crucifixion and resurrection because we did that back in April. And then just finish up with two Sundays on um, pieces of chapters 20 and 21, which you could kind of call a coda to the to the Gospel of John. And again, we are trying to uh, read the Gospel of John, particularly with the framework of how do we know who God is, and we know who God is, what God is like by looking at Jesus. That is the supreme revelation of who God is and what he's like, what he does, and how he operates and acts. And you remember last week, I uh, just want to go back for a quick review We focused on verse 3 of chapter 17, which is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. This verse, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And you remember we talked about uh, Jesus as being in the center of, 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 of our lives, and particularly of our life of the church, surrounded by the church, the Bible, and Christianity. All of these three designed not in themselves to be perfect or to be worshipped or to stand central, but they are, uh, I don't know if tools is the right word, they're, they're the paths, they're what we use in order to get to Jesus. Jesus as the, the word of God, the eternal logos, assuming human flesh, God's space, meeting our space. The church, us here locally, but also worldwide, this gathered community of the baptized who confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and seek to live in obedience to him. Remember, we're a colony, not a lifeboat. And Christianity is this religion of beliefs and practices. It's through the last 2,000 years how the church has grown and developed and into certain practices that we use in order to connect with one another, with Jesus, and with our world. And then the Bible, this sacred canonical text of the church. Not Jesus itself, not to be worshipped, but, but the scriptural witness to Jesus and the prime source for the theology of the church. And theology, of course, is how we think and what we say about God. So all of these three, Christianity, church, the Bible, we use as a community of people in order to bring us to Jesus. I just wanted to emphasize that again as as our foundation, as our perspective. And then Jesus moves on through this prayer. And again, I don't have time this morning to deal with all of it at all. So we're just going to choose actually the last section. We're going to start with verse uh, 17 of John chapter 17. It's on the wall. Uh, Or if you have your own Bible, of course, feel free in whatever form you have that to, to look at it. But Jesus is praying here. And remember, this is on the night This is the end of the evening before the worst day in the history of the world. Hands down, the worst day in the history of the world when empire killed God. That's what was happening on Good Friday. Empire, of which we all are a part, 
Sometimes we don't know it, and sometimes we do know it. Empire killed God, the worst day in the history of the world. And Jesus is praying to his Father, in the first place, for his disciples. And this is the conclusion of his prayer for his disciples. Verse 17. Sanctify them, that's my disciples, the ones that are right here with me in this room. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. If you don't mind, I'm going to go a little, uh, a little nerdy on you for just a couple of minutes, because you could just leave that text up there. Thanks. I would just like to um, comment on three words that appear in, this, in these couple of verses, but also appear oftentimes in John, and I haven't done this until now. The first one you'll see is the word truth. Sanctify them in the truth. This, this word truth, particularly as it's rooted in the cultures of, of the Near East, and especially in the ancient cultures of the Near Earth, is not just um, something with the mind, like we know that two plus two is a four, and I'm four, and I'm assuming that that's still the case, Nikki. Something like that anyway. Um, or whatever scientific fact it is. Kind of an intellectual, I, I know that something is true. That's part of it. But it's way, way more than that. It has to do with faithfulness. It has to do with re- reliability. It has to do with trustworthiness. It has to do with sureness. In fact, a famous theologian, I read about this in the commentary that I used for, um, for John, said this. He sees the basic meaning of the word truth in John as, and this will fit in exactly with a big theme we have here, God's reality. The truth is God's reality, which, since God is the creator, is the only true reality. God's space meets our space. God's truth meets us. The only true reality is God's reality, and that's truth. And it encompasses every aspect of our lives as individuals and as a community and as a world. So when you think of truth, you just have to think just as broad as you can. Whatever's faithful, whatever's just, whatever's reliable, whatever's trustworthy, that's truth. And then this word world You have sent me into the world. There are in the New Testament three different words that are translated in in English, world. Uh, There are four. One of them means inhabited earth or empire. So in, in Luke 2, you may remember this, Luke says, A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be uh, registered. He's thinking about the Roman world, the, the, the world conquered by Rome. That's one sense of the word. Another sense of the word is actually it's the same word that we use for the word age, and oftentimes it's translated eternal. And it's used in this way. When Jesus in the parable of the sower says, the cares of the world 
choke out the planted seed. He's using this particular word, aeonus, the word that's often translated eternal. That's another word. And another word just simply means the land, the earth. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, that's what he's referring to. None of those three are this word. So if you ever want to read the New Testament, and you can do this on internet really quickly, if you see the word world where you're reading, you just can click on it and find out which word is behind that, because it's quite helpful. The word that's, the Greek word that's uh, translated here as world is the word cosmos, the word cosmos. So right away you're thinking really big. And I looked up the etymology, which is the, where does this word come from? And it comes from an old, old word, which means ornament. And particularly in the ancient Near East, the ornament of a woman. So when a woman puts on her ornaments, whatever they are, that's where we get the word cosmetic from. So in the first place, this word is rooted in this idea of the universe being an outstanding ornament, this harmonious whole, this connection, everything connected and everything working together and everything being in balance. That's the positive side. But in the New Testament, often, and especially in the, in the work of John, both his Gospels and his letters, World refer, this word cosmos refers to the world which has been shattered by the fall, which stands under the judgment of God, and in which Jesus Christ appears as Redeemer. So you could, you could, you could really say this word, again, in our context, what I would translate as is empire. And not in the Roman Empire sense, but in the, in the, in the evil empire of the world sense. This world cosmos is talking about this empire. And in John, and often in the New Testament, this is a fairly negative word, but of course that's not the end of the story, because what does God love? God so loved the world. Same word. So you have in John and in the New Testament this struggle between empire and between the world. So that's truth. World, and then the third one is the word word. Uh, let's see if I can find it in the verse. Yes, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, I grew up in a very small, it's bigger than Trinity right now, but a relatively small Orthodox Presbyterian church over in Hatboro, which is like a half hour from here. And I believe on our church sign, we had underneath the the name of the church. It was actually Trinity Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Isn't that interesting? I'm just thinking of that now. Uh, on the bottom of the sign was, was this phrase, um, thy, because they used the King James then, thy word is truth. And as soon as you hear that, what do you think of? You think of the Bible. And there's nothing wrong with that. Go ahead and think of the Bible. But the Greek word that's here is the word logos, which is not Bible. And you know what the word logos means. We've referred to it lots of times. In the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was God. The word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus. So almost every time, depends a little bit on the context, 
When you read in the Gospel of John, or in any Gospel, but particularly in the Gospel of John, you read the word word, you don't think primarily of this. You think of Jesus. Of course, they're close together, and some, it's, sometimes it's, it's, the, it's, it's not a clear boundary. But when John says, or when Jesus says, you're, to God, your word is truth, and you remember earlier in John, Jesus says, I am the truth. So when you, when you read this word, word, then you think of Jesus, and it just gives this depth to it. It just changes it from, from the book. It includes the book, but it goes way deeper. Your word, Jesus is saying, I am truth. I am truth, again. Anyway, that's the nerd part. World, um, word, and truth. Whenever you read John from now on, just take a moment, stop and think, what's he really talking about here? And if you have a computer, click on the word. Most times you can find the background of it. So Jesus says, praise to God, sanctify them. And these are the disciples that are right in front of him. Okay? The disciples that are right in front of him. He's, he's kind of looking at them. And he says to God, sanctify them, set them apart, is what this word means. This group of, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was men and women, but the 12 disciples were all men. This group of men, set them apart, as I have been set apart. Your word, here I am, your word, I am truth. As you have sent me into the world for mission, so I have sent them into the world. So these disciples are being sent. Again, this is the evening before the worst day in the history of the world. Jesus is saying, God, I'm sending these men and women out. As you have sent me into the world with the mission of bringing shalom, salvation, freedom, restoration, healing, whatever word you want to use that fits in that line. All wrapped up in Jesus, the truth. For their sake, he says, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So here's this. Jesus saying to God, here's this group of people. They are going into the fire of tomorrow. And the fire of the rest of their lives as witnesses to me, that fire which will kill some of them and drive them from their homes and put some of them in prison. I'm setting them apart in me, in my truth. And would you give them what they need in order to go out and be this colony, this church, this colony of people that lives such that when the world looks at it, the world says, oh, that's what it means. That's, that's where we're headed to. That's what this work of Christ is doing. And I hope you can just feel a little bit of, of Jesus' heart here. Again, 
This is the night before, and Jesus knew what's coming, the night before the worst day in the history of the world. And then Jesus turns his attention from the disciples who were with him on that night to those yet unborn, to those who would come along in the coming months, years, decennia, centuries, and millennia. So you can kind of, almost in your mind's eye, see him shifting his attention. Now he's not looking at these 12, or I think there was more than 12 there, but looking at this group, he's shifting his attention very clearly to those that would follow. So let's read the rest of the chapter, verses 20 through 26. And as, as we read it, think, think, think of that, that Jesus has shifted his attention, again, from this group in this upper room who's going through tomorrow to the rest of the history of the world and all the people that come after that. I do not ask this, this sanctifying, this being sent on mission, for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world, the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. There's a lot in here. There's a lot in here. There's a lot of repetition. It's just this kind of like a, a, a rushing river, one of these uh, rapids places full of water. It's just flowing and bubbling. Jesus looks up from that group in that room and looks ahead into history and says, all these people that are going to make, uh, be part of these colonies that are going to be established all over the world, I want them to be one. I want them to be unified. And not just unified like, like a bocce ball team, to the extent we're unified. Or a rotary club, to the extent we're unified or whatever it is. I want them to be unified in oneness with me like I'm in oneness with the Father. There's this, this deep, rich unity. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. This indwelling is kind of the technical theological term for it. Jesus dwelling in us, and we dwelling in him, and he in the Father. We only get to the Father through Jesus. 
So there's this deep indwelling, and, and I wish I could tell you what that's like. I wish, I wish I could make it clear. I don't think I can. The Spirit has to do that. It's a rich, rich thing. Jesus is not saying, go out and do all kinds of stuff. He's not praying that the churches that follow over the centuries will be successful or big or have big buildings or reach lots of people or whatever. It's not what he's saying. Saying, I want them primarily to be in me and I will be in them. Together we'll be in the Father working to turn this cosmos back into the ornament that it was designed to be and which I so love. And then he says, this is a glorious thing. This is a glorious thing. And again, it's not about size. It's not about success. This indwelling with Christ, this knowing that we're together with him, moving through our lives in community and looking for ways to witness to him in the world. It's a glorious thing. Then he says that they may know that Jesus was sent by God. Then he's hearkening back, of course, to the prayer we just read, where Jesus is saying, I have been sent by God into the world to bring peace and freedom and liberation. I'm sending my disciples, and now I'm sending all these generations of people that follow me into the world. That they may know Jesus and the Father, with, and we've talked about this before, with all the richness of the word know. Not just know about, but know in the intimate sense of the word. And what's the purpose of this all? That the love which you have, with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This love is the driving force, the purpose, the goal, the end all, and the be all. All of this working towards the agape love of the New Testament, the self-sacrificial giving of ourselves to God, to Jesus, and to one another, and to the world in which we live. This glorious task of being united with him, right through suffering, it's not that there's not going to be any suffering, right through suffering, to be filled with Christ, and to be an example in the world of what it means to at least experience and feel a little bit of this ornament of creation that God so loved and so desired that things would be like when he created the world. And now I'd like to um, make it uh, personal in the sense that, that, that we talk about us as Trinity Church. So watch what I do here. I'm going to go through the text again. And where all the pronouns are, I'm going to substitute Trinity Church. And watch what happens. 
Jesus prays to God, I do not ask for these only, but also for the community of Trinity Church in Broomall, PA, who will believe in me through their word. That is the word of the original disciples. That's what we're, that's what we're reading here about, right? The word of the original disciples. That Trinity Church may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That Trinity Church also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to Trinity Church. Wow. I see a couple smiles already. The glory that you have given me, I have given to Trinity Church. That Trinity may be one, even as we are one. I in Trinity and Trinity in me. That Trinity may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved Trinity. even as you, God, have loved me. This immense love for Trinity Church. Father, I desire that Trinity Church, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I desire that Trinity Church see my glory O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And remember, what's the world here? Empire. Okay, get that? Even though empire doesn't know you, I know you. And Trinity Church know that you have sent me. I made known to Trinity Church your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in Trinity Church and I in Trinity Church. That's pretty powerful stuff. Now I'd like to go a step further. I'd like to ask us as Trinity Church to take these words on our lips. In other words, go back. We'll go back to the beginning, Peter. Sorry, I didn't tell you this before the service. And just together, say this prayer as it's on the screen. And in whatever ways you can, appropriate these words and appropriate this prayer of Jesus and appropriate these these promises and and what he wants for us. For yourself, obviously, as individuals, but also for us as a Trinity community. So together, I do not ask for these only, but also for the community of Trinity Church, who will believe in me through their word, that Trinity Church may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, 
that Trinity Church also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to Trinity Church, that Trinity may be one even as we are one, I in Trinity and you in me, that Trinity may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved Trinity, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that Trinity Church, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and Trinity Church knows that you have sent me. I made known to Trinity Church your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in Trinity Church and I in Trinity Church. And in just a moment, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. This, 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 this wonderful sign that Jesus had given us of fellowship with him, this whole indwelling, eating a meal together as a community and together with him. I'd like to invite you as you prepare to come to this table to just take a moment of silent prayer. Say whatever you need to say to God at this point in order to prepare you to come to the communion table. 